I suppose that um, to state the obvious, I don't think that Jesus was uh, a man, God, as an atheist, I suppose it would be quite extraordinary for me to say anything else. Um, the real question is then what sort of uh, a man uh, Jesus was now. Quite frankly, we don't know. Uh, we can exclude an all, all manner uh, of possibilities. So what I'm going to present, you know, is a sort of a story that uh, I've told uh, many times before. Um, but it, it, it's, um, it's a hypothesis. It's um, a likely, or the most likely, in my uh, opinion, sort of um, explanation uh, of, um, of Jesus. Um, so the first thing I think just to say, uh, which is what we argued in this week's paper, lots of comrades, you know, won't have got their physical copy uh, because of the post, but uh, you can look at it online. And that is that the chances of um, this man being born on December the 25th, year one, uh, well, there's, you know, 364 uh, other days in the year, and quite frankly, we don't know. Uh, all I would uh, point out is that precisely for that and uh, lots of other reasons, um, historically, uh, Protestant sects, but in particular Puritan sects, uh, were very much opposed to Christmas. Many of them still are because they recognise that this is a, a borrowing from paganism, um, there is no biblical evidence of uh, what month, what year uh, Jesus was born in. Uh, and indeed, we know uh, that it was in the fourth century uh, that they decided to plump uh, for December the 25th. This is sort of eerily, how should you put it, close to the winter solstice. So, you know, these Puritans do and did recognize uh, that this was a borrowing. This isn't um, uh, anything to do with uh, their son of God, by which they actually did mean uh, the son of God. OK, so very briefly, let's try to work out this story. And a lot of it involves um, inference. A lot of it involves, you know, how should you put it, intelligent uh, guesses, we can exclude an awful lot. So this is a, a, probab a probability. So the first thing to say about uh, Judea uh, at the time of Jesus, and remember, according to the Bible, he didn't live in Judea, he lived in the north, in Galilee. Politically, that was separated. Nonetheless, what we're dealing with is a part of the world uh, that was full of uh, ferment, uh, it had suffered um, invasion after invasion. Um, you know, the Macedonian Greeks, the Romans were the latest. Before that, there were the Assyrians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Hittites. One could go on and on and on. And in periods when empires were either fighting each other or in decay, uh, what we've got evidence of is uh, national uprisings, um, peasant uh, uprisings, sometimes urban uh, uprisings, and brief moments of um, independence. Um, 
So we know, we know all of that. Um, okay. Um, so let's get rid of that. So what we have, and again, this is something that we do know, um, is that ideologically, uh, this found its reflection in all manner of uh, different sects, all manner of different leaders. Um, and, uh, you know, just to illustrate it, um, I think it's worthwhile recalling um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, they were discovered um, at the Dead Sea in a cave by some young shepherd and um, they had uh, all, all manner of different scholars uh, reading often what was very fragmentary sometimes had uh, bigger um, scrolls uh, suffice to say that the catholic church sat on these dead scroll dead sea scrolls for a, a very considerable uh, period of time and i can remember um, as a young as a young man um, a certain um, Eisenman uh, coming along and leaking um, what uh, they had translated to the public. And it made a big impact at the time because the, the sort of idea in the mainstream press is that somehow they discovered the original uh, Jesus. Well, no, of course they hadn't. Uh, but what they discovered is a sort of contemporary sect uh, of Jesus, which has many eerie echoes of bits of the Bible. Uh, so no one's claiming, at least I'm not claiming, uh, that the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, have anything to do directly uh, with Jesus, but indirectly, uh, they're extremely valuable because what they do is give us an insight into the world outlook and the expectations and the beliefs and the practices of at least one sect um, that was contemporary uh, uh, to Jesus. Now, my guess uh, for what it's worth is the very nature of archaeology is that, um, you know, just like with fossilized remains, for every one fossil uh, you come across, there'll be a thousand, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other uh, dead animals that weren't uh, preserved. So I'm sort of taking uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls as an example of something that, um, you know, has been discovered, uh, that survived uh, from these times, uh, and I'm taking it as representative. Now, I think that's a pretty safe um, conjecture. Why? Uh, because although uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are pretty damned uh, unique and, ama and an amazing a discovery, what we actually have is surviving is literature. Uh, not only the Bible, uh, what we have in particular um, is a guy who was around another uh, broad contemporary uh, of Jesus, and that is one Josephus, Flavius Josephus. That's his uh, Latin name. And he wrote two particularly famous uh, books. One is the Jewish war. Uh, he was actually uh, part of the military command of uh, the Jewish resistance, the, the Jewish uprising that culminated in the siege of Jerusalem 
between 70 and 73, what we now call AD, Common Era. Uh, he switched sides and joined the Romans. But he described um, the situation in the run up uh, to the siege of Jerusalem when there was a national uprising. Uh, the Jewish forces defeat, defeated a, a Roman legion. Uh, then the Romans come in, but he describes a situation where the country is in ferment. And he describes a situation where there are many, many communist uh, sects. Uh, that's his word. And these people, you know, teamed up with bandits. Uh, again, I'm taking them as guerrilla fighters. Uh, and what they would do is attack rich people. Um, they preached um, some sort of uh, communist uh, doctrine. Some of them were royalist and thought that their leader uh, was some sort of uh, messiah uh, a figure. But basically, he's describing a situation um, of where there were many, many, many different groups. And it would be like if we'd only, you know, in the future, in a, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years time, you know, there'd been an apocalyptic nuclear war, an archaeologist discovered the archives of the Socialist Workers' Party. Um, well, no one would claim nowadays that that represents the left. And I don't think that what, what we want to be thinking about is that the Dead Sea Scrolls represent the left or the popular party at the time of Jesus. They, they were one of many. That's my argument. And in backing that up, uh, we have um, Josephus, um, who was a contemporary. And it's interesting. Um, uh, another of his books, The Jewish Antiquities, which begin, I think from my memory, you know, basically he's describing to a Roman audience, this strange people, uh, the Jews. And what we have in here um, is a description of Jesus. And um, well, you know, from very early times, and what I'm talking about is sort of 18th and uh, 19th century um, scholars, philosophers um, have scratched their heads and go, no, this doesn't work. This cannot be the words of uh, Josephus. And indeed, modern scholarship has come along and analyzed, you know, word patterns and all the rest of it. And I think the general consensus is now uh, that this was some sort of medieval insert by some monk who either out of religious piety that, you know, Josephus must have forgotten uh, the Lord. After all, he was uh, the son of God and performed miracles. How on earth could he forget Jesus? So either they inserted Jesus because somehow Josephus forgot him um, or, or uh, it was cynical forgery. Uh, we obviously don't know. But what we do know uh, is that somehow uh, this miracle maker um, didn't make it into the Jewish antiquities. But interestingly, um, a guy called James the Just does. And what we think, and uh, there's very good evidence of it, because it's actually in the Bible, in the first, uh, um, I'm talking about the New Testament uh, here, in the earliest part of the New Testament, which is um, courtesy of Paul, what we have is a description by Paul of him going to Jerusalem and meeting, um, you know, the Jesus party headed by one, called, one person called James, who is called James the Just. And we have many other references uh, to James the Just and how James the Just uh, became head 
uh, of the Jesus Party. Um, so, you know, that doesn't seem to be um, um, in doubt. What the relationship uh, between uh, Jesus and uh, jo uh, Joseph, James is, has been something of a problem uh, for Christians. And what we've had is a steady uh, degrading uh, of that relationship. But Paul himself, uh, in his um, writings, or the writings that someone put down under his supervision, simply says, uh, the brother of the Lord. And so I'm taking it as, um, um, you know, uh, evidence uh, that that was indeed uh, the case. Okay, so very briefly, um, let's look at uh, Josephus. Uh, he describes a number of different schools uh, of thought that existed roughly at the time uh, of Jesus. He talks about the three schools. Um, he describes the Sadducees. These are the upper class uh, uh, Jews who run uh, the temple. Uh, these, these people, he describes them as very worldly wise. Uh, they don't believe that, you know, the dead will you know, rise up at any time. Don't believe in saints. Don't believe in miracles. Basically believe in recognizing the power of the Romans. Uh, believe in reluctantly uh, collaborating uh, with them. Not as enthusiasts. Uh, they don't like the fact that the Romans come along uh, for example, and start making their appointments to who will be the next high priest. They don't like it when ver various Roman em emperors and uh, generals, you know, go into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, look around and say, bugger me, there's nothing in it. They consider all of that sacrilegious. Indeed, having any uh, Gentile uh, walking around a temple, let alone into the Holy of Holies, is completely unacceptable to them. But in, in their view, um, any attempt at resistance, any attempt at an uprising is sheer madness. Rome is a world empire. Uh, their army has no equal and therefore just learn, learn to rub along uh, with the Romans. That's their sort of, uh, um, um, how should you put it, uh, world, world outlook. Okay, so then uh, what we have is the Herodians. We can put them aside as being not really Jewish. These are people that do enthusiastically collaborate with the Romans. They are only semi-Jewish. Uh, um, you've got people, because this is, uh, you know, a, a land that's been invaded and reinvaded and uh, reinvaded, uh, of where a lot of uh, um, what you call roughly speaking Judeans have become half Greek and we are talking about Greek not Latin not Roman you know go to the gymnasium um, basically um, ape uh, Greek ways the Greeks are the sort of height of civilization as far as they are concerned but also um, uh, Josephus deals with the Pharisees you've all heard of them in the Bible and um, Basically, what we need to understand um, about the Pharisees is that uh, what had happened, um, I don't want to go too much into it, but basically what had happened to what we now understand, what, what, we, what we understand of the Jewish religion then 
is that the age of prophecy, the age of uh, um, um, interpretation had been closed. And basically the Sadducees, the high priests, their job was simply to preside over ceremony, uh, to repeat words, uh, to preside over sacrifice, the holy days. But you did have this, uh, how should you put it, um, Pharisee party. And the job of the Pharisees precisely was to interpret the word uh, for the modern meaning uh, of the time. Now, you've got various writers um, such as Hyman Maccabee, if anyone's come across him. I, when I first read his book, The Jewish Revolution, I must admit it was like, wow, this is a fantastic uh, book and I still very much uh, admire it. Uh, but uh, along with Karl Kortsky, uh, he makes the argument that what you had with the Pharisees is what you would call the popular party, that these were popular leaders. Now, you wouldn't get that from the Bible. And indeed, if we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, you wouldn't get it from the Dead Sea Scrolls either. I'm equating uh, the Pharisees um, with what the Dead Sea Scrolls talks about as smooth talkers. Uh, what I'm talking about here. Uh, is people that um, participated from what we can gather um, in attacks um, on the popular uh, party. And what's interesting is precisely um, Josephus adds in a fourth uh, party, and that's what interests us. And what is particularly fascinating is he seems to have had, even though he was high class, uh, came from the aristocracy, seems to have had first-hand experience um, of the fourth philosophy of this popular uh, party. Now, we don't know whether he joined uh, the, you know, the sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He describes them as Essenes. I'm taking uh, the fourth philosophy, as, as I've argued, um, as a, a just equivalent of saying the left. So it's equivalent of some um, aristocrat uh, today, some, someone from a bourgeois background joining the SWP or the CPGB or anti-capitalist resistance or spew or whatever you want to call it. But he joins something uh, that has very many similarities uh, with the practices of, um, uh, that are outlined in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were written over a long period of time, roughly speaking, this is from my memory, I'll, I'll throw, throw in a date, say 160, what we now call BC, um, right up to and just after uh, the Jewish revolution, which is 68 uh, AD. And then it comes uh, to an end. And obviously they, they scuttle away their precious um, writings and they hide them in a cave and for good reason. Uh, because the Romans are just about to start marauding, massacring and uh, wrecking. Um, so they hide away uh, their holy uh, uh, texts. But as I said, Josephus seems to have spent a year uh, with the Essenes. I still find it amusing. I've got a bit of an infantile uh, sense of humour, I readily uh, admit. Uh, he's describing these people, remember, to a Roman audience, and he, he's saying, look, they, they, are, they are really weird, these people. They don't believe in slavery. They have annual elections uh, for who's going to lead them. Uh, they wear the same clothes all year round. They begin 
as uh, you know white suits uh, they wear them until they turn to rags but what they keep doing is washing their hands and washing themselves and they even wash themselves after having a poo um and he's saying that not because of course he understands modern hygiene because he actually said but even though we all know having a poo is a completely natural thing that the, these people go and wash themselves and of course what that's all about is making oneself pure uh, for the lord because also what they're doing is praying um and um, debating religion but they have constant constant um uh, praying um sessions and it's interesting um what they're praying for so if we look at the dead sea scrolls some of it gets really militaristic so for example uh what you've got is the idea uh, that they're praying uh, for the intervention of God's angels here on earth. There's plenty of stuff in the Old Testament uh, of where prophets get divine help. So this seems to be the, the thought world that they're keying into. But they also have the idea of purifying uh, the, I'll call it the Jewish, Judean, call it whatever you will, the nation. And they, they, they believe uh, that uh, if they can purify enough people, what you'll have is a party of warriors organized into legions going into the battle against what they call the Kittim. Uh, this clearly is a reference to the Romans. And with God's intervention and with legions of angels, uh, they will win. And what they will constitute uh, is God's, God's kingdom. Uh, which isn't, of course, in their view, uh, in heaven, it's here on earth, and basically this kingdom, just like the practices that they describe at, uh, um, uh, you know, amongst their own community, this will be a communist um, theocracy, uh, ruled one presumes by them, uh, presumably the Jews are some sort of uh, elite, uh, but this will be a world you know, to the extent they knew the world, that this would be a world uh, uh, system. Okay. Um, let's move on. Okay. Okay. So also what we get, um, this is Josephus again, um, the Jewish, Jewish wars, is we get descriptions again, we can get this um, from uh, other sources, but Josephus is, is jolly good. Uh, what he describes is the coming together of rural and urban uh, rebels. He describes the foundation uh, or the formation, yeah, of uh, the Zealot party. Um, this is some sort of merger uh, as I said, of um, rural resistance and uh, urban resistance. And we know how successful these people were, not only by rural uh, uprisings, uh, but assassinations in Jerusalem of high-class collaborators, so high priests, servants of high priests. And this was particularly done uh, by uh, the Sicarii. Uh, Sicarii is... Uh, named after a short dagger that would presumably be concealed uh, under a cloak and their method was to stab stab their collaborating uh, opponents and then disappear into the crowd you know so you get the idea from Mao of uh, the guerrilla 
uh, operating in a popular sea. So the idea would be, uh, my argument certainly would be, is these people did have mass support. They weren't isolated um, assassins. Um, they were no doubt an elite that were prepared to die. Uh, they had, uh, you know, fanatical religious uh, ideas, but that was widely held. And what you had is a people uh, that were on the edge of revolt. And what you had uh, in terms of ideology is the belief in the end of times. And I've already described that. Uh, the end of times would come about, uh, the Kittim, the Romans would be defeated. And that could come about either through, um, in terms of a, a section of the zealots, through basically standard uh, military tactics of a people's uprising, or you introduce a miracle uh, uh, into it of one extreme or the other. Uh, and my argument would be uh, that we need to place Jesus in that thought world. And my argument would be uh, that Jesus, of course, wasn't a zealot, uh, but he was in the fourth philosophy. He was part of the popular party. And what he would represent is the most reliant um, on a miracle um, happening, uh, the least reliant on practical guerrilla warfare and arming uh, the masses. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to have been one of them. How others would have regarded him, I don't know. Um, that's impossible uh, for me to say. But what I would argue uh, is that precisely he, he inhabited uh, that sort of um, ideological uh, uh, space. And if you take Josephus, it's worthwhile, again, just finishing on, on this one in, in that respect, that what he, 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 as an upper class guy, you can see him sort of shifting and almost in the same sentence or certainly the, uh, the same uh, paragraph uh, between detestation um, of the fourth party because they were anti upper class and then an admiration um, of them. Uh, he admires them, but hates them. Um, you get the two feelings uh, mixed up uh, together. Okay, so uh, we then come to the biblical uh, Jesus. And my argument here is that the biblical Jesus just doesn't fit with real history. Um, it just doesn't work out. Now, of course, you know, me, I'm an atheist. I, I, I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in gods. I don't believe that you can overcome the physical laws of the universe. But what I would argue is that we shouldn't then look at Jesus in the Bible and simply say, well, we dismiss it. Um, it's all rubbish. Because what we would understand as Marxists is the importance of myths. And what we understand myths as is a story uh, within which there's a truth. And our job should be uh, not because we will end up knowing, but we can put forward a probable argument of what lies behind the myths and why the myths uh, were coined. And to illustrate the point, I want to begin with the nativity, uh, the birth of uh, Jesus and that particular story. And after all, we're the right time of the year, aren't we? So you all know why well, I say you all. I don't know what religious education is like now in school. And maybe looking at the list here, maybe we're all so old 
that we all had a good religious education. I don't know. I did. Uh, I went to a Church of England school. We had daily religious readings. I was an atheist very early, but I always found Christianity intriguing because it just struck me as, well, this doesn't work. There must be. What, what, what is it? So I, anyway, anyway, so here's the story. Um, um, Mary, um, she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit. You all know that doesn't isn't one of her um, cousins also uh, doesn't she conceive in the same way. It's a miracle. And nonetheless, Joseph marries her. Um, so there they are. He's meant to be a carpenter. Uh, out in Nazareth, that's right up in uh, Galilee. And what we get is the story of the Romans. And I think at the time, depending on when he's really born, but let's ignore that. But the story in the Bible is that the Romans decide to have a census. Well, we know that they had a census in um, what we now call AD 6, but we also know that it didn't affect Galilee. But the, the Bible then says, uh, that what the census required is everyone to go back to their place of birth. Now, just imagine that. Um, this is crazy. I mean, I you know, nowadays it would be completely mad because we asked each other where we were all born and where we now live. I'm very much an exception. You know, I live where I was born, uh, but I would have thought I must be one in a hundred thousand. You know, um, anyway, leave that aside. Uh, in the Bible, what we have is Joseph. I was born in Bethlehem. And now what we have in the songs, the little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is right in the south in Judea. And uh, its significance is uh, that this was the home base of King David. Now, King David was the fabulous um, in, in terms of... Um, mythology by, by, by this time, uh, founder of a huge kingdom. Uh, remember his son, um, Solomon, and you can stretch the borders perhaps uh, all the way to the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates. Either way, he's meant to have built this fabulous uh, uh, temple, uh, conquered all manner of different people like the Philistines, he's usually smiting the Philistines. But the significance is that he's blessed by God. He's God's king uh, ruling over this land. And so my version of it is that it's very unlikely uh, that Joseph was actually born in Bethlehem. Um, so what else is going on? Well, uh, according to, let me get it right, I think it's uh, Luke and I think it's Matthew uh, in the Bible. What we actually have bizarrely, because remember, um, Mary's never had sex um, with Joseph. So what we've got is Joseph going back to Bethlehem. And then what we've got is two of the testaments in the Bible describing the, the family tree uh, of Joseph. They're both different, by the way. Uh, but what they do is they both go back uh, to David and then they go back eventually, like we all do. Uh, to Adam. My argument is that uh, Jesus is propagandist, maybe Jesus himself, uh, I don't know, but certainly his propagandists were putting out the idea that Jesus was the direct inheritor of um, the Davidic line. 
And to me, uh, what this story was, was the sort of equivalent story uh, that we know of in uh, medieval, late medieval, early medieval times in terms of English history, of some bod popping up and saying, I'm, I'm the son of, uh, I'm the real son of Henry VIII. I'm the real son of, you know, um, Harold or whoever it is, Edward the Confessor, doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm a Saxon, I'm, a real, I'm the real Tudor, I'm the real legitimate uh, king um, of England. That's the point. Now, I'm not taking that seriously. I don't think uh, that Joseph was in, in any direct way related to David. Um, but that was the claim. And, uh, and the reason why I'm arguing that is why on earth leave it in? Uh, or why have it in uh, if you're talking about some, you know, divine you know, conception? Why, why have it there? Well, my argument is that a, con a construct is there. And for whatever reason, either because it became so well known or whatever the reason, it remained. Um, so in the same way uh, that if we look at the earliest work, and we know again how to date these uh, various works, the earliest bit of the New Testament precisely talks about um, James, James the Just, being the Lord's uh, brother, i.e. what you've got is a party uh, that claims to be the religious but also secular uh, uh, royal family uh, um, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, that, that's that's the claim. OK. So um, I, I'm going to leave out um, a lot of the other fabulous uh, stories. So, for example, I don't take at all seriously, um, you know, the 12 year old, isn't it? Jesus going to Jerusalem, outwitting uh, the um, the temple priests in, in theological debate, how that ended up there. I suspect it was just made up to show how clever Jesus was. Um, likewise, uh, well, I, again, that's worthwhile investigating. The first miracle. Why the hell is the first miracle? Uh, this is, remember, Jesus going along to a wedding party. You know the story uh, that, you know, they run out of wine and um, Jesus comes along and there's some water vats and um, hey ho, um, Zachar, you know, rip, it turns into wine and the guests turn around to the host and say, start tasting this wine. I said, why did you keep the best wine to last? Um, well, obviously, because it's a miracle done by Jesus. But uh, the, as the Bible explains, uh, the habit was that you begin with the best wine and then you feed the guests the worst wine because presumably they're so drunk by then that they don't notice the difference. My argument would be um, here uh, that what we have is a later uh, insertion as Jesus's uh, first miracle, which is a deliberate um, blasphemy. Because what we know of uh, James, what we know of uh, in terms of the Jesus party, is that just like the Essenes, just like the Dead Sea uh, uh, people and their scrolls, is that, is that these people are teetotalers. They do not drink. Uh, um, or, you know, uh, the fruit of the wine. They might eat uh, berries, they might eat, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, fruit juice, uh, but they don't get intoxicated. So why do we have this 
miracle. My argument would be uh, that what's happening here is that the James party, the Jesus party, uh, is under attack. Uh, and its basic Jewishness um, as an extreme sect, uh, very orthodox Judaism, is being insulted. And we need to understand uh, these people. So what we're dealing with is people who were at one extreme xenophobic, uh, would not mix uh, with Romans, would not mix with collaborators, certainly would not mix with prostitutes and low class people. Now, we don't know about Jesus, um, you know, um, but what I'm arguing is that, uh, yeah, putting that as his first miracle, um, that in my argument would be later. That is a, a later uh, invention that's designed to break um, uh, the Jesus party. And again, we know that from Paul, uh, because what Paul agrees with uh, James and the other part, uh, the leaders of the party in Jerusalem, is that what he will do is recruit Gentiles, but they are recruiting Gentiles into some subcategory uh, who don't, for example, uh, need to uh, get circumcised. And what we have with uh, Paul, as described by Paul himself, is an attempt to water down all manner of taboos. So Paul is arguing uh, against the dietary uh, taboos of the James party um, and basically says, well, what's wrong with food? Well, you ask any, um, you know, Muslim, um, you know, anybody from, um, you know, um, a strict Jewish uh, background, what is wrong with food? Well, you don't, for example, eat pork, for example. Uh, if you do, um, you've committed a religious sin. So I would argue uh, that by inserting the drinking, but also the watering down uh, these religious taboos, something else is going um, on. And indeed, what we have again in the words of Paul himself is, um, I, I won't bother at the moment with his background, I'll come to that maybe, but what we have in his description is the Jewish masses basically saying, look, it's that bastard Paul, we know him, and them chasing him out of town. Um, and that's his, um, not, not his road to Damascus uh, moment, uh, that's a separate uh, moment. He's smuggled out uh, because the masses are out uh, uh, for his, his blood. And that's because he's viewed as a taboo uh, breaker, someone who wants to water down the religious taboos. And basically, uh, the Jesus party has to cover its back. That's my uh, reading um, um, of it. OK. OK, we also come and again, I think, you know, I think it's worth uh, doing it. Did Jesus ever exist? It's quite possible uh, he didn't. Uh, we have no contemporary evidence of, of him. Um, you know, the fact that when he was meant to being crucified, um, you know, um, the dead were meant to have risen from the ground. Uh, the curtain of the temple was rent in half. There were earthquakes. The, the, the sun was blotted over. Well, no other person um, in Rome or in Jerusalem, no literate, there were plenty of literate people, no one noticed that. 
So we have all sorts of descriptions of earthquakes and natural disasters and uh, all that stuff, even in casual letters. Uh, but no one seems to have noticed that. But my basic argument is, well, on balance, if his bloody brother existed, which I think probably he did, uh, we have tons of references in the earliest, earliest writings of the sort of, I'd call it, well, Jew-Christian, whatever you want to call it. Remember, the Bible was put together in the sort of fourth century and loads of books were excluded. And what we have is some books, for example, uh, that pivot the whole story much more on James than Jesus. So, the, you know, that, for example, uh, the argument is amongst these people uh, that the killing of uh, James, which I think from memory was something like 54 BC, right, he was killed, uh, that the reason why uh, Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans was because of James. And uh, that, that, that is something, that's a story you can find um, 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 in other versions, um, other, uh, other versions of um, uh, the, well, I don't call it the New Testament, but uh, other testaments uh, that were written, roughly speaking, uh, at the same time that were excluded. Um, and again, you can get hold of a volume uh, and read the religious commentary usually by a Church of England vicar who would be very knowledgeable. Well, we th th these books were excluded because they lack the value, the purity uh, of the four, uh, the four key books. Well, you read them, and in my view, well, hey, uh, they're very similar, uh, except they're different uh, emphasis. They, they don't fit with the doctrine uh, that was being built up in the fourth century, remember, under the domination of uh, the Roman uh, authorities. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm making the argument that in all probability uh, Jesus existed, but he was one of many um, such uh, leaders, such many, uh, one of many uh, resistance uh, leaders, um, you know, that uh, Josephus refers to just in passing. He, I think he uses the number 70, but that's a religious uh, sort of throwaway uh, term. He just means many, um, a bit like 57 varieties um, um, in modern uh, lingo. Okay, so in my view, you can reconstruct some sort of um, um, version of probably what Jesus did in his brief revolutionary uh, career. Uh, and what he seems to have done is convinced himself that um, he was uh, not only a teacher, um, he seems to have been someone who would be literate. He would be someone who's clearly familiar um, with the what we now call the Old Testament with the writings. And remember, there'll be many other uh, writings going on uh, that were contemporary, uh, religious prophecies and uh, all the rest of it. He seems to be familiar uh, with that. So he, he's definitely from the Jewish tradition. He hasn't come in from outer space, uh, but he convinces himself that he's not only uh, a rabbi, a teacher, uh, but he's a prophet. And more than that, uh, he, he convinces himself that he's the Messiah. Uh, and that means the liberator, uh, the, one, the one that's going to bring freedom. Um, and what he does, he merges uh, the Messiah 
um, with kingship. So as, a, as I've argued that what you've got is a religious political uh, milieu, some leaders proclaim themselves, we know that um, in AD 68 to 73, some leaders of the zealots declare themselves to be kings. Uh, others say, we don't believe in kings. We only have one Lord and that's up there. Um, we do have in the Old Testament examples of, um, you know, um, prophets and um, kings merging. Either way, Jesus seems, seems to have convinced himself of that, seems to have gathered um, a following uh, around his uh, uh, idea. And what we have, we can sort of detect um, in the Bible, what we think you've got is some sort of trip up north, and either that will be close at hand. Let me just look up uh, the map and get the mountains right. Mountains in um, Old Testament um, thought world are holy places. That's where you meet God. That's where you can go and commune uh, with God. So in the pre-Yahweh um, uh, religion and in, and in the Yahweh uh, religion, uh, high places are holy places. They used to be for many, many different gods. But either way, Jesus seems to have traveled, let me get the mountain, either up to Mount Tibor, which is just to the east of uh, the, um, the Sea of Galilee. Remember the story of the fisher folk and uh, all of that, or further north to Mount Hermon. Either way, what we get is a description of his closest disciples basically um, saying that he had the Holy Spirit enter uh, into him and he becomes transformed. Uh, he, he's no longer an ordinary man. That doesn't make him son of God in a biological uh, sense, but he's become something else. He's been reborn. And what we then have is a, a description of what I will call and what other writers have called his royal progress. Uh, and what he does, he travels down uh, through Galilee, he travels down into Samara, he travels over um, uh, the Jordan, he comes back uh, into Judea, and then we have uh, in the Bible is his triumphant uh, entry uh, into Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, uh, this is from Easter. Um, any, anyone who looks at uh, Christian celebrations of Easter knows the story of the masses um, greeting Jesus. He comes into the city at a festival time. Uh, in the Bible, it's talked about as Passover, but some big festival where you get masses coming in from the countryside. Uh, this is now a one city a cult. Um, so it's no longer dispersed into many, many different religious uh, centers as of uh, yore. So the temple uh, cult is central to the religion and uh, these um, festivals uh, involve huge numbers of um, people coming in from the countryside. So not on the level uh, of uh, um, Mecca, but imagine it in that sort of way. And uh, so that, you know, the streets are heaving uh, with people. This is often uh, a time of riot. Uh, the Romans look at what's going on and they go, bloody hell, here they go again. Um, either way, they look at what is going on and what you get in the Bible. I'm taking it as uh, 
to use a pun intended as gospel what you get is the masses this is the words of the bible greeting jesus as messiah uh, they shout out hosanna uh, which means save us uh, they proclaim him uh, the king of israel um, and jesus rides uh, a white ass that has uh, prophetic uh, significance so he's referencing back anyone who knows their um, religion knows what i'm doing he's proclaimed he marches uh, up uh, again this is new testament uh, up to the temple which is a huge huge uh, uh, building um, and what he does according to the um, the bible is he clears out these people called the money lenders um, i'm very skeptical of that I'm sure there could have easily been money. Why money changes? I don't know what that's all about. No, the probable, um, the probable story actually is that what he does, he clears out uh, the most uh, collaborating high priests. Uh, that's the probable. Meanwhile, the other priests carry on as before. So what we also have is a description. Uh, again, this is the Bible of Jesus and his um, um, fellow party members debating uh, with what I'll call the Sadducees. So the temple has been taken over, but the religious clock in the temple hasn't been altered. Uh, and again, according to the Bible, uh, what we have is a description of Jesus and his party expecting the end of times. And uh, we all know the story of uh, Jesus uh, going out with his closest uh, uh, disciples from, you know, outside the temple walls into what is called the Garden of Gethsemane. And we have the story of um, Judas, who in all probability uh, would be one of his brothers, um, betraying him uh, to the, the Romans and the high priests and the Romans sending a cohort. And I think that's between... 300 and 600 men and we all have the the picture in you know in in our minds of uh, Judas going up to Jesus and giving him a big kiss uh, in order to point him out in my view given that the guy's been preaching and has come into Jerusalem on a white donkey uh, I think myself that they would have recognized him I don't think they needed G G uh, Judas so you you again need to read it as the writers need someone who's betrayed um, Jesus. That's my argument. I don't think Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples who got 30 pieces of silver and then hung himself. I don't think that the Romans would have needed to have an insider's job, um, whether it was outside the walls or inside the walls. Uh, my argument would be that the, the Romans in combination uh, with the temple guard seized uh, Jesus, dragged him um, to the uh, governor, Pontius Pilate. Um, presumably, Pontius Pilate either executed him very quickly or delayed it. Again, there are different arguments about it. Uh, maybe Pilate, um, you know, had him whipped. Maybe he mocked him by putting a bloody crown on him and... Um, uh, a staff in his hands and uh, all the rest of it to humiliate him. Uh, but the idea uh, that it has in the Bible that uh, there's uh, Pilate 
you know, coming out of his uh, governor's house, there's the balcony, and he's got three prisoners, two horrible murderer thief types, and Jesus, the guy that the masses have just been welcoming as their Messiah, and says, who do you want me to free? And they turn around and say, well, not that bastard Jesus, we want Barabbas, one of these uh, thieves, we want him, him freed. Uh, I think is, well, one, there was no such, um, how should you put it, religious requirement um, for the, the Roman governor to free a prisoner. That's all rubbish. So I think, again, what's going on is rewriting and what this is excusing the Romans uh, of guilt um, of the death of what became the Christian man god. Uh, that it wasn't the Romans that did it. And remember what you have in the Bible is uh, the chief priest coming along and saying words to this effect that, no, we want Jesus killed. Um, uh, and on our hands and, you know, in the, you know, on the hands of future generations, they will be, be guilty. We prefer that. So you get this uh, blood guilt um, of, of the Jews. Uh, so the Romans are innocent. And again, in the Bible, the first person to um, say, you know, who, who they've just killed is a Roman um, centurion. And we know the story then. Jesus rises from the dead, does loads more miracles. Um, and it's from that uh, that we have Paul. So um, at least Robert Eisenman's argument is that the beginning uh, of the Acts, the first, the earliest uh, writings in the New Testament probably didn't begin with this obscure. Um, is it they have a lottery or something like? No, it probably began not with the replacement of uh, Judas, but surely it began with a, a debate or just a decision: uh, who's going to replace Jesus? Who's going to be regent? Um, because the idea went out that Jesus had risen. This seems to be the conviction of the Jesus Party had risen from the dead uh, and would return and would return very soon. And so, you know, th these people lived in the end of times and expected Jesus back at any moment. Um, so that's probably uh, the case. But what we have is this Paul figure. Let me have a look at time because I don't want to go on too long. So I'm going to I'm going to come to an end very soon. What we think we know about Paul is he began life as Saulus, and he begins life in terms of his um, political life as someone who's Latinized, Greek eyes, uh, but someone who begins um, as a persecutor of the Jesus party. And that's the road to Damascus uh, stuff and um, how he sees the dead Jesus. And what we have is the argument in the Bible made by Paul, uh, that his visions of Jesus really do trump uh, this doctrine of James the Just, of just observing um, the taboos and the ceremonies uh, of Jerusalem and the, um, the Jewish uh, uh, cult, uh, that what he does is he begins to separate the two and denounce uh, these so-called apostles. So at one point, he's basically, oh, I'm very much um, in awe of you. And later we have his contempt uh, for Jesus's um, uh, brothers. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, right. Um, last last point, um, and that is that what we have now in terms of Judaism um, and Christianity uh, sort of flows from these times. And what we need to understand when we talk about Christianity isn't Jesus, isn't James, even though we have a testament, James's testament um, in the Bible, very worth, much worth reading, by the way, Testament of James. One presumes it's being redacted, but it, it, it really is full of vicious class hatred. Nothing about the meek will inherit uh, the world. Nothing about, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, James is putting forward a militant class perspective where the, the rich are roasted in hell. Uh, that's his um, um, politics. So we don't have Christianity coming uh, from that source, except in the most peculiar way. We need to understand modern Christianity, and I think it's Christianity. Jesus wasn't a Christian. James wasn't a Christian. Uh, you could describe uh, Paul as a Christian, and if he is, he's the father of Christianity. With him, it begins. Of course, it has its elements uh, that went before, but he's the founder, not Jesus. And in the same way, modern Judaism owes its origins, not to Jesus, of course, not to the Dead Sea Scrolls, not to the temple, not to the Sadducees. It owes its origins to the sack uh, of Jerusalem and the destruction uh, of uh, the temple in AD 73. And what we have is a description, could be fanciful, can't remember his name, is it Rabbi Jokin or something like that? Other comrades will no, 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 no doubt know. But he's smuggled out of Jerusalem and he's presented either to Tiberius or is it Titus? Again, this is, I can't quite remember. Either way, they do a deal. And what we have then is the synagogue. Uh, religion as opposed to the temple uh, religion. So, of course, there are elements that, um, you know, predate that. Um, I, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible uh, clearly does, uh, but what there was then is a break, um, you know, clear uh, uh, division. Anyway, that's the argument, and um, I'll finish uh, with that, Stan. Thank you very much.